You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Well, we're in this Advent preaching series where we are examining the claim of Christmas, the incarnation, that the Almighty God would come near to us in the person, in the babe of Jesus Christ. And we're examining this claim of Christmas by looking at the stories of real people who were involved in the first Christmas, who were involved in Jesus' birth. We're looking closely at their stories, learning about these people, who they are, and what their lives and their stories teach us about Jesus and what he has come to do in this world. And so far, we've looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth. We've looked at Mary and Joseph, and today we come to Simeon and Anna. So if you don't have your Bible open to Luke chapter 2, I want to invite you to go there, where we meet Simeon and Anna who bless the Christ in the temple. From their story, from the story of Simeon and Anna, we're going to learn some powerful truths about Jesus. So we're going to look at Simeon's declaration. Some people call it Simeon's song. It's really a prophetic word about Jesus, who he is, and what it means for him to be a savior. We're going to look at that, but also from their lives, we're going to see an example for us to follow. And I think I want want you to hear me say this. I believe this this morning, that if you will lean in today, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter where you are today with God, no doubt we're all in different places with God today, no matter who you are or where you are. I believe this. If you will lean in this morning, the story of Simeon and Anna will rid you of any indifference that you have today toward Jesus, of any apathy that you have today toward him, of any half-hearted devotion, if we lean in, I believe that God will stir our hearts today in a powerful way. Um, Let me give you an image of what I mean. I think that there are a lot of people, maybe even in this room, that feel about Jesus today kind of like I feel about vegetables. Hang with me for a moment. I think there are a lot of people A lot of Christians in churches all over today who feel about Jesus today about like I feel about vegetables. Like I I know that vegetables are important. Um, I know that I need them. I know that I should eat them more often. But for some reason, they just don't make it onto my plate. You know, I just, for some reason, there are just so many other things that end up making it onto my plate other than vegetables. Maybe some of you love vegetables. Like you're like, I think vegetables are wonderful. Some of you love vegetables, but I bet you love vegetables as a wonderful side dish. I bet there's very few of you that are like, I'm ready to sign up and go all vegan for the rest of my life. See, there are many people today who treat Jesus like we treat vegetables. Churches are full of people who would like a side dish of Jesus in their life. In fact, I want to just ask you as we get started this morning, let's just get right into it. Can you say this morning, can you say to Jesus, Jesus, my life is wholly yours. It's all yours. Or is it mostly yours, partly yours? Can you say this morning, Jesus, you are my all in all. Or is he some for you? Wherever you may be with God today, I believe that if you lean in this morning, God will use the story of Simeon and Anna to rid us of indifference, of half-hearted devotion, and stir our hearts today. Let me pray for us, and we'll get back into the text. Almighty God, 
We do thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege and the gift of gathering with the church week by week, of opening your word and, and through which you speak to us. And I pray simply, Father, as we look to this text, as we look at this story, we ask that you would speak to us today. We invite you into this space. We pray that you would, um, that you would stir our hearts this morning, that you would open our eyes, that you would rid us, Father, of indifference and of apathy and of half-hearted devotion, that as we look at this text, God, you would be more beautiful to us and that we would bless you with our lips and with our lives. We invite you in. We want you here, God. Speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. 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 Well, I want to begin by looking at the characters in this text. Um, In this text, we meet Simeon and Anna, and we meet them in the temple courts in Jerusalem. Simeon, we're told in verse 25, is a man who is righteous. He is devout. He is waiting for the consolation. That word just means comfort. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And we're told that the Holy Spirit is upon him. There are some scholars who say that they think maybe he was a priest. I actually don't think so. I think he was just an ordinary man who was hungry for God. He's in the temple this day like he is every day, hungering for God, hoping and waiting that God's promised Savior will come. We're told that he is a man of character, that he's godly. He's a man who seeks after God, and he's a man who hears from God. He is a man full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is upon him. In fact, in his seeking of God, we're told he has heard something very specific from God. He has heard from God in a way that other people in his day didn't hear from God. The Holy Spirit is upon him. He's, he's got this prophetic gift that he's been given. Verse 26 tells us that, that it's been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he has seen the Lord's Christ. What a promise. What a promise that he's been given. And his life, it's devoted to awaiting the promises of God. He's faithful. He's patient. He's hungry for God. He's looking for God. He's after God. Similarly, we meet Anna in the temple as well. She is, Anna is one of my favorite characters in the New Testament. We don't get much detail about her, but the detail that we do get about her is that she is a woman of worship and witness. I mean, like if there was like one way that somebody summarized my life and they said your life was about worshiping Jesus and witnessing to Jesus, man, that's a life well lived, isn't it? And this is Anna's life. I mean, what a hero in the faith. I I pray that every church has an Anna, a, a woman whose life is marked by worship and witness. The text tells us in verse 36 that she was a prophetess, which meant that like Simeon, God spoke to her and God spoke through her. It tells us that she's advanced in years, that she's li- uh, she lived with her husband for only seven years. So think about this for a moment. If 13 or 14 was the average age in which someone was married, by 20, she was widowed. And so for decades and decades, she has lived a single life, a single widowed life, a single life devoted to, Jesus, to, to God, pouring her life out, devoted to God, anticipating and waiting for the Messiah, for the Christ. Verse 37 says, she was widowed until she was 84, and she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Wow, 
like Simeon. She's devoted to the Lord. She's seeking him. She's living for his promises. Wholehearted devotion to the Lord. A man that is faithful, a woman that is devoted. These are seasoned saints, elder saints who are living for his promises, who have trusted God for decades, that they, they are waiting upon the Lord. They have endured seasons of life, trials and setbacks and sufferings, and their faith hasn't wavered. Their faith has strengthened. Their character hasn't faded. Their character has grown more godly in every season. They are examples to us, Simeon and Anna. Um, But here's the thing about them that I think is also important to acknowledge. They're also ordinary people. The only reason that we know their name is because Luke recorded them. They are ordinary people. They were not the prominent people of their day. For some reason, we love to, um, to highlight prominent people. Like in our culture, we love celebrity Christians. Do you guys remember when for about three minutes, Kanye West was a Christian? You guys remember this? He put out the King Jesus album. That's a great album, by the way. But for about three minutes, Kanye West was like all about Jesus. Justin Bieber, like we love that stuff. When celebrities become Christians, like we think that it's just the greatest thing in the world, but not the Bible. The Bible tells us, especially the story of the incarnation, that God's workplace is the ordinary, everyday life of ordinary people. Isn't that encouraging? That God loves to use and to work through ordinary people who are wholeheartedly devoted to him like Simeon and Anna. These are ordinary people whose lives are marked by spiritual hunger. And Luke wants us to know this. They are people with a passion for the work of God in their day. They are a people who are not looking for a side dish of God in their life, but they are feasting upon him as the main course. Uh, Simeon and Anna are examples to us of what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls holy discontentment. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about this. He talks about a life that is marked by holy discontentment. Like you're living a holy life that is happy in God, but you are discontent. You are hungry for God in your life. You are hungry for more of him and more of him. You are hungry for a work of God in your day. Simeon and Anna are people with holy discontentment. They, we're told that Anna worships Fast, prays night and day. Simeon is waiting eagerly to see God's people restored by God's promise. This is a man and woman who have made God the main course in their life. They are seeking him, awaiting him, desiring him to come in their day. In other words, they are not in the temple this day because they heard that the Messiah was going to show up and it was convenient with their schedule to make an appearance. Do you see this? Now, I, I want to let you know something just honestly for a moment, as I have been sitting in their story this week, preparing for this sermon, I've been so convicted by the Spirit, by Simeon and Anna. If I'm honest with you this morning, a bit of a pastoral confession, my passion for God, my hunger for the Lord has really been low in the last few months of this year. Like it's waned as the year has gone on. My, my time, you know, you know how I know that my hunger and passion for God is low in a, at a point in my life? It, it's when my time starts to get filled up with trivial things. My mind starts to get filled up with sports information, and I can quote you the latest stat line before I could quote you something from my most recent quiet time. My, my time gets occupied by 
news and Netflix and political headlines, trivial things. My life gets spiritually slothful rather than disciplined. And the, the example of Simeon and Anna, it's caused me just to confess this to God, to just, to, as I've sat with this text this week, just to say, God, make me like, like this. Like, I want my life to be like this. I want to yearn for you, God. I, I don't want you to be the side dish in my life. I, I want to hunger for you, God. I want more of you in my life. I want to see you work in our church, not just go through the motions and the routine. I want to see a work of God in my day. I don't want to be satisfied with lesser things. I want you, God, to be the main course in my life. And maybe some of you are right there with me this morning. Maybe you're in a similar place. And I believe that God wants to use Simeon and Anna and their story to inspire us, to be examples to us, to, to get back to seeking God above all else. His word promises us that if we seek him, we will find him when we seek him with all of our hearts. And on this particular day, their seeking is rewarded and they find him. Boy, do they ever find him. Their story, Simeon and Anna, collides with the story of Mary and Joseph on this day. As we pick up in Luke chapter 2, verse 22, Mary and Joseph have traveled to Jerusalem with a six-week-old baby Jesus. Anybody ever traveled with a newborn? That's a lot of fun, isn't it? Takes you like seven hours to go seven miles sometimes. Uh, diapers explode in car seats. I mean, all kinds of things can happen when you travel with a six-week-old. Um, they're tra they've tra made the, the, the journey to Jerusalem with a six-week-old baby Jesus. What a thought that is. And they've made this trip because they're doing what every parent in their day was expected to do. How many of you, especially maybe some of you new moms, feel the pressure and the expectations of motherhood? All the things that, so, so I think it's just kind of interesting to think about this, maybe where Mary might have been, and, and, and as she's, you know, new mom and sleepless nights, and she's trying to figure this thing out, but yet they've got to make this trip to Jerusalem to do what was the custom of the day, what was expected, and we pick up here in chapter 2, verse 22, look back at the text with me. And when the time had come for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it was written in the law of the Lord, Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. And so they've made their way to Jerusalem, to the temple, to do what the law requires. Exodus chapter 13 verse 2 requires that the firstborn son must be presented to God, must be uh, um, uh, celebrated as a gift before the Lord. Leviticus chapter 12 talks about how uh, after a woman gives birth, she must come to the temple and she must offer a sacrifice for purification to be pronounced clean. And I find myself wondering what this was like from the perspective of a young mother. You know, um, uh, First of all, uh, Leviticus chapter 12 requires uh, a lamb to be offered. But then there's this thing at the end of chapter 12 that says, but if you're poor, then you can offer turtle dove and a pigeon instead. And so here's Mary, very clearly poor. I wonder if in some ways as she enters the temple, it's maybe like the new mom at HEB buying her food with wick or with food stamps. Be a bit of feeling a bit shameful, a bit insecure, who knows? But it's interesting to wonder, isn't it? She, she presents Jesus, what might be going through her mind. She makes her offering the priest 
sacrifices it on the altar, and she's pronounced clean by the priest. Exhale. Okay, I'm one step at a time. I'm navigating this motherhood thing. She exits the the court of women in the temple and makes her way into the outer courts. Perhaps her and Joseph gather their things. I wonder what they're thinking. Maybe they, they just said, hey, you know, that went faster than we thought. Let's go to brunch. Maybe that's what they're thinking. Probably not. Maybe Jesus needs a diaper change. Maybe he needs to be fed. Maybe they've got some friends that they plan to meet up with before they start the journey back home. But as they walk through the outer courts, suddenly, led by the Holy Spirit, here comes Simeon up to them abruptly, followed by Anna. It's this remarkable moment. And the result is this prophetic word about Jesus. And it does, no doubt, create quite the scene in the temple that day. The news about Jesus, the six-week-old baby, no doubt starts to spread. I want to look at what Simeon says. It's quite the claim. It's, it's, it's quite the word about Jesus. I want to look at it, and I want to parse it a bit. Let's read it together. Simeon's blessing, verses 27 through 35. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, and he blessed God, saying, Lord, now you let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what had been said about him. What a scene, right? I'm imagining Mary and Joseph are just like, wow, what, you know, what, what's going on? What's happening? This man in the spirit holding up, grabbing their baby, holding him up like Simba. You know, it's like, what a moment. What a word he just speaks about this baby. But he's not done. Look at verse 33, verse 34. And then Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Luke's gospel is really interesting. He does a couple of unique things. One, he always introduces us to people in pairs, and so we get the story of Simeon and Anna together. But also, as Luke is telling the story of Jesus, starting in chapter 1, every time someone speaks a word about Jesus, the picture of the kind of Savior that he has come to be starts to get clearer and clearer. Imagine in the morning, on a cold morning, and your window is fogged, and you turn on defrost, and slowly... Little by little by little, the window starts to clear. And this is what's happening. And so we've, we've heard from Gabriel, and we've heard from Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we've heard Mary's song, and the picture about Jesus is getting clearer and clearer. And then Simeon's words bring a whole nother level of clarity to who Jesus is and the kind of Savior that he's come to be. And there are three things from Simeon's song that I want to point out to us about Jesus. Three things. And the first is the exclusivity of Jesus. The exclusivity of Jesus. Simeon says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon is declaring that in this babe, this six-week-old little babe, that this is God's only means 
to save us. There is an exclusivity to Jesus. And we must ask, what is it that he has come, this babe, what has he come to save us from? Well, there were many in Israel at the time of Jesus' birth that were anticipating a savior king who would come and save them from Rome. The Jewish people were under Roman occupation. And so there were people who were anticipating and hoping that the savior king would come and change their circumstances. Are you with me? They were wanting a savior who would change their circumstances. And I think there were many of us that have convinced ourselves that if we could just find a way to change our circumstances, uh, that new job, that new house, that new relationship, a little more dollar bills in the bank account, if we could just change our circumstances, then we would be whole. Then our life would be fixed. We would be better. We would be enough if just our circumstances would change. But when Simeon looks upon this six-week-old Jesus and declares that in him is salvation, he is speaking about a salvation that is far greater than the Roman problem. He's speaking about a salvation that is far greater than bad circumstances. He is speaking about a salvation from the power of sin and all of its effects. You see, sin is the root of every human problem. Do you believe this? Do you believe this, even in your life right now? That the root of every problem is sin and its effects. Every conflict that we find ourselves in is because of sin. Nations rage and war because of sin. Governments are corrupted because of sin. Every conflict that you have in this life is because of sin. Either your own sin or another person's sin. Every conflict, whether it be a conflict in a relationship. Right now, if you have a conflict in a relationship, it is because of sin. Every conflict. Conflict with money. If you have conflict with money in your life, it's because of sin. Conflict with sexuality, it's because of sin. If there is inner conflict in your own soul, doubts and fears and insecurity or jealousy that is just rooted in your heart and you just can't kind of find a way to get it out, you wish that you weren't so insecure, you wish that you weren't such a jealous person, you wish that you could really love other people freely without wanting other things back in return, it's because of sin all conflict. And every person under the sun is looking to something or someone in this life to bring peace to the conflict. Every person. Every person is looking to something to rid their guilt. If I could just do a little more, then I could make up for my mistakes. If I could just be a little better. Every person is looking to something to mend their messes. And Simeon declares to us, this babe, he is the only source. He's the only place in which we can find salvation from our sin problem, in him alone. He's God's only provision. There's no other. 
And this, my friends, is what I mean when I say the exclusivity of Jesus. There is nothing else that can free us from sin and its power. Without Jesus, we stand guilty before a holy and righteous God as sinners. Without Jesus, we are powerless to change. Without Jesus, we are like a kid trying on different clothes throughout the decades of our life. We will swap different versions of morality, different pursuits, different versions of ourselves, trying to satisfy the hunger for righteousness that is deep within our soul and nothing else can do it, only Jesus. And how does he do it? How does he save us? How does he free us, rid our shame? How does he do it? Well, the rest of the story tells us how. By being nailed to a cross, he takes what we deserve upon himself. He dies our death. He pays our price. He absorbs upon himself all of our sins so that he could give to us all of his righteousness so that in him we might find freedom and life, new identity, new power, new purpose, rid of our shame and free from all guilt. This is the love of God. Salvation can be found in no one else, only in Jesus. Simeon says there is an exclusivity to Christ. He is salvation. But he also tells us that there, in a paradoxical way, there is an inclusivity to Christ. Simeon declares that he is a savior for all people. In verse 32, he says that he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Again, the expectation in Jesus' day was that a king would come who would raise Israel up to prominence, that they would perhaps like kind of swap places with Rome and that they would now be the big bully on the block, uh, the big world power, that they now would, would rule and uh, that they would have prominence. But this is not the sort of light to the nations that God was intending. Jesus would be a light that reveals God's love for all peoples. Jesus would be a savior for all kinds Jesus would be a savior to all ethnicities and all cultures and all backgrounds, whether you, my friends, are rich or poor, whether you are educated or uneducated, whether you are religious or irreligious, no matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done or what your background is, anyone who would recognize their need for salvation, this is what we call repentance, anyone that would say, yeah, I, I need something outside of me to save me from my sin. I need something outside of me to fix me. I need something outside of me to mend me and make me whole, to give me new life and new power. I'm kind of done with my own self-saving. Anybody that would say that, that's called repentance. And then anybody who would recognize Jesus as the only Savior, as God's provision, we call that faith. Anybody who will repent and believe will be saved. Anybody can get in on what God offers through Jesus. There is an inclusivity to him that's really beautiful. Did you know that Christianity is the most diverse religion on the planet? Did you know that? That today, across many different time zones, all over this globe, there are Christians who are gathering to worship from every tribe <laughs> and tongues, and nations, that, that though Christianity might be on the decline in America, it is exploding across the global south. Did you know that? Across India and places of, in, in South America, Christianity is exploding and revival is breaking out. Uh, that Even in our context, there are churches of people gathered from all different cultures and subcultures. There are cowboy churches and there are suburban churches and there are Indian churches and there are all kinds of people worshiping Jesus because anyone can get in on his grace. It's a beautiful, 
reality of Christ. And Simeon declares this to us. He is God's only salvation, only means to salvation, and he is a savior to all kinds of people. And then finally, there is this final declaration about Jesus that Simeon gives us in verses 34 and 35, that there is a divisiveness to Jesus. There's a divisiveness to him. You've probably felt this in your life, haven't you? It's why sometimes it's really hard to be bold about your faith, because there's a divisiveness to Christ. Verse 34, look back at it with me again. Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And he gives Mary this word, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Many people will oppose Jesus, this sweet six-week-old little babe, will become an obstacle to many people. Simeon's words point forward to the great suffering that this child will endure in order to bring salvation to us. People will despise him. People will reject him. Pharisees will hate him and hunt him down. He will be spit upon. In his day, his own people will take a stand against him. In the end, he would be nailed to a cross and he would be left to die. Simeon says, in all of this, is so that he can reveal hearts. Interesting, isn't it? So that he could reveal hearts. You see, Jesus, the word about Jesus, the gospel, it will reveal what is truly in the heart of all people, this word about Jesus. The humble, we're we're told, those who can admit their need, even, even now, even today, those who can say, I'm not who I pretend to be or who I know that I should be. Those who can admit their need and those who turn to him as God's source of forgiveness and redemption and new life, those people will be raised up, we're told. But those who are proud, those who are unable to admit their unworthiness, those who are set on self-saving, maybe you know someone like this that just can't admit that they, they need someone or something to set them free and make them right, those people, we're told, will fall. This is how it was in Jesus' day. And this is how it is even still in our day today. There is a divisiveness to Jesus. In other words, there are really only two kinds of people in the world. Are you with me? There are those who will trust him and throw their lives upon his mercy. And there are those who will reject him and will refuse to receive him because they're too proud. Either you're with him or you are against him. There is no neutrality with Jesus. And if you are against him, we're told that that you will fall, Simeon says. Those who are against him, they're going to fall. They're going to fall into spiritual death. They're going to fall into physical death. They're going to fall into hell itself. But if you will receive him through repentance and faith, and if you keep coming to him and trusting him and seeking him, you will, uh, you will, you will rise, he says. You will be lifted up. And I don't know about you, but as I soaked in this story of Simeon and Anna this week, I just, I just realized, like, I, I want to be lifted up today. I want his mercy to meet me 
I want a new hunger for him. I want to be lifted up today into forgiveness and new power. And I want to walk with him and I praise him and bless him and thank him for his grace. I want to be raised with him into glory in the end. What a gift it is to receive Jesus. This is what I want to invite you to this morning is to see him for who he really is. What a savior he is, the kind of savior that he is. And to bless him, to receive him, to turn to him. In fact, my prayer this morning is that wherever you may be, wherever you may be with God today, and there's a variety of different places in this room, no doubt, wherever you may be, that you would turn to him, you would acknowledge who he is, you would bless him for the kind of savior that he is, for the free grace that he gives, for the death that he paid for you and the life that he offers you, and that God would rid us of our indifference toward him. Maybe you've been on the fence with him. Maybe you've, uh, you've never trusted him. You've never crowned him as your savior. If that's you this morning, I hope that you've seen who he is, that you will call out upon him for salvation, that there is no greater gift that you could receive this Christmas than to claim Jesus Christ as your Savior and crown him as your Lord. The restlessness, the anxiousness, the wandering in your heart, your soul, it can stop its searching. This is the kind of Savior that he is. And if you are already his disciple, I want to encourage you this morning as we enter into a time of response to consider where there might be indifference or apathy in your heart toward him. Is there any half-hearted devotion that might exist? And may we pray this morning together that God would make us more like Simeon and Anna, faithful, hungry for a work of God in our day, that we may see him and bless him, and that we may be desired to be used by him, giving our whole lives to him. I want to make a little bit of space for you just to turn to the Lord right where you are in this moment. And listen for his voice. I'm going to close this in prayer in a moment, but I want to give you some time right where you are. What is God saying to you this morning? What is God saying to you through his word? Will you see Jesus for who he is and how he loves you? Will you receive him? Will you bless him? Turn to him this morning. I'll close this in prayer. Father, there is none like you, holy, righteous, good. Father, we admit to you this morning that we are not like you. And we do turn to you this morning and we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ, the Savior King, the one who came near to sinful people like us, people full of conflict, came to a world full of conflict, a world aching and hurting, and you came near to us in every way that you might make us whole as we come to you. And I pray that in this room this morning, as we enter into a time of response, Father, that you would meet with us in the sweetness of your presence, that you would remind us of the great links that you have gone to to purchase us to belong to you. I pray that you would stir our affections, that you would rid us of indifference or of apathy, and that we, Lord, would be hungry for you in this season. That we would say wholeheartedly, come Lord Jesus, come. Come into our lives, come into our 
church family. Come into our community. Come into our families and do what you do. Fill us with life and peace and forgiveness and wholeness. Mend our messes. Reorient our affections. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the great gift of Jesus Christ. We bless him this morning. It's in his name that we pray. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.